The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. Most of our competitors come to a transaction or come to the, a position once government runs a process. So a lot of the big infrastructure competitors are more transactional. So if government announces something, then they'll come bid or they'll come compete. To us, we would be working on it years and years in advance. That's Scott Charlton, CEO of the world's largest toll road operator, Transurban, speaking about how his company plays the long game. Welcome to Magellan In The Know. In this episode, Scott Charlton explains Transurban's philosophy of making data-driven decisions for investing in the three markets where it has a big competitive advantage, namely Australia, the USA and Canada. Scott is interviewed by Magellan's Infrastructure Portfolio Manager, Offa Carliner, and Head of Infrastructure, Gerald Stack, about how this approach is paying off, as well as coming megatrends like autonomous vehicles, and how a toll road operator can be successful in cutting carbon emissions. But first, here's a warm welcome from Offa Carliner. Welcome to our podcast, Magellan The Know. This is episode 22. I'm Offa Carliner, a portfolio manager in the infrastructure fund here at Magellan. I'm joined by my colleague, Gerald Stack, the head of infrastructure, and Scott Childen, the CEO of Transurban, the world's largest toll road company, which has assets in the US, Australia, and Canada. Transurban's been in our portfolio since inception in 2007. It's currently the largest position in the fund. So thank you very much for joining us, Scott. Thank you for putting us as your largest position in the fund. <laughs> I didn't realise that. That's great. <laughs> Scott, I'm going to start by asking you, you've been with Transurban for, for almost 10 years. Your background wasn't in toll roads. How did you end up being the CEO of a toll road company? Yeah, well, life takes these journeys, I guess, that you yeah. don't anticipate. I started out as an engineer. I actually wanted to be an architect, but my... Um, college uh, teachers told me I couldn't draw, so uh, I was good at math, so I became an engineer. I uh, really enjoyed that, and uh, but then I got into the world of finance after I did an MBA, and so I spent a lot of time in investment banking, but always around infrastructure and construction, because I really like seeing big things being built, or I like seeing the results, rather than just, say, issuing paper or, or whatever it may be. So I uh, was really always attracted to infrastructure and did that in the um, investment banking for a long time. And then one of my clients was Leighton Holdings, back before they got taken over for a long time, and they asked me to come over and uh, be the treasurer and ended up being the CFO there for, uh, for quite some time and really enjoyed that. But then obviously that company got uh, taken over and went to Lynn Lease and became the COO. And then the opportunity came up for Transurban. So I've sat on all sides of the fence from uh, designing to building to financing to operating and and seeing all aspects of it. So it was just really a great opportunity for me to put that all into effect and just love um, creating these great opportunities. Uh, It takes a while in infrastructure, but uh, yeah, I really enjoy creating things. So investment banking, construction, toll road operation, ownership and operation. So in three pretty significant organisations, Tell us about the differences between them. 
No, it's really interesting in how uh, made the changes. So, look, in investment banking, and, and one of the reasons I got out of investment banking, and I was in Hong Kong for a while looking after all of uh, Asia-Pacific and infrastructure and construction, um, one of the things is you get higher up in investment banking, you get more and more client-focused and less transactional or deal-focused. Yeah, yeah. And I really missed actually doing things and making things happen and feeling like, you know, it was down to me doing things and, and helping create things. And so one of the reasons then I moved into the Leighton Holdings side of the business, and at that time, I think Leighton Holdings was about four or five billion. I think when I left, it was close to a $20 billion market cap, but it was going through a big growth spurt and they needed some help and some expertise, particularly in financing. At one time, we were the largest contract miner in the world. We were Caterpillar's second largest client. Yeah, it was a period world. of serious Yeah, serious growth. And so, but it was really interesting at Leighton Holdings, it was all about performance and probably too edgy on performance. So <laughs> it was very edgy on performance at that time. Things have changed since then, the takeover and other things caused some issues, but I learned a lot about performance. And at the time, Leighton Holdings or Leighton Group was operating many of the toll yeah. roads. They actually developed many of the toll roads yeah. at the time where investors lost a lot of money. And that's a different thing about what you value and, and who's in control. So I learned a lot about the operations. I learned a lot about performance. And then after that, ended in going over to Lynn Lease, which was really interesting there, and was the COO and had uh, HR reporting to me. Learned a lot about culture and, and people and collaboration and really sort of management, because Lynn Lease has a, such a great you know, historical culture and a different way of doing things. So I think both organizations and investment banking taught me many different things. It has enabled me to kind of hopefully bring the best of everything together at Transurban, because they each had their real strong aspects. Yep. But each of them had their, I think, some issues that in the end cost those companies in the way the leadership turned out or their performance. And they're too heavily focused one side or the other. Okay, so that then sort of leads me to the nature of concession organisations. Concession organisations, Transurban is one of them, have historically had a what I would describe or characterise as a somewhat adversarial relationship with government. I think really from day dot at Transurban, you've adopted a much more partnering-driven uh, approach. Does that come out of that time? Yeah, it does come out of that time, and it comes out of what I thought what the company could achieve. It was interesting when I was asked to come speak to the board about the role, and I said, look, I'm not really interested, because <laughs> at the time, to me, Transurban didn't have the relationship or the reputation that I would want to work for that organization. At the time, I thought it had a reputation being difficult to work with, of being arrogant, of not wanting to do things, and had a certain view with certain clients that would make things difficult. So my you know, my discussion with the board was we'd really have to change some things and we really have to go about it a different approach and think about the holistic approach with the client, with the networks, with everything else rather than being transactionally oriented. And the board was very, very supportive and, and backed me all the way. And um, yeah, we got in there and uh, it took a long time in certain markets to, to get a change of attitude. But I think, you know, what people don't do, and if you look at our strategy statement is People, particularly in the finance world, think it's all about money and, you know, this, the infrastructure is about yep, money. Yep. It's not about money to the government. And that's one small aspect, but it's about delivery. It's about the community. It's about solving political problems, solving community problems. And at the end of the day, the best way to solve those problems is really just to get enough of a relationship where you can sit down with the government and say, here's the things that we have to have to make this work from our side. We understand these are your priorities. Tell us, you know, which ones you want us to rank and, yep. and how high you yeah. want to do. And then I think what we're really good at is threading the needle to get everything to work. Whereas a lot of companies come to the infrastructure world and go, well, we have the money. 
or you know we'll buy you out or whatever. But that's that's really not. I think the government's that's only the first part. Yeah, that's only the first part. And the other part is that we we spend so much time with our communities and our clients over such long period of time building these relationships, trying to understand what they want. Most of our competitors come to a transaction or come to the, a position once government runs a process. So a lot of the big infrastructure funds and big infrastructure competitors are more transactional. So government announces something, then they'll come bid or they'll come compete. To us, we would be working on it years and years in advance because we would understand it's going to come to the market. We want to play a role. We think we can come up with a great solution, and hopefully we do. But I think it was a real change of, of focus and, and opening up and investing in both the clients and a lot around our other stakeholders. And, um, you know, the first few years, it was interesting. It was a change of approach. And, you know, some of our clients were very skeptical. And the first time we went out and raised equity, some of our security holders <laughs> gave me a hard time. But uh, over time, I, you know, hopefully we've, we've done the right thing by them and the returns speak for themselves. And, and we understand, though, that every transaction, you know, we have to earn our, our right. Yeah, so it's, uh, it was a big change. It's a big change. You talk about government priorities there. Obviously, for most of the life of Transurban, you know, interest rates have been low, inflation's been low. You were clean shaven uh, <laughs> <laughs> at the moment. You know, obviously we're I'm seeing, old now, I just don't care. <laughs> we're seeing inflation tick up significantly, cost of pressures on the political agenda across the spectrum. How has that changed your approach or your thinking uh, more recently? Yeah, no, there's good questions. And, you know, I said to the team as we went through COVID and we went through the other things I think we've talked about in some situation, this is my seventh crisis yeah. to live through um, with without beards. Uh, <laughs> and they're all, they're all a bit different. But I think one of the things we did, again, is one of the things that I'm very focused on in Transurban is being data-driven and, and look at the data and what mm -hmm. the data actually says as opposed to what people think and what people are doing. Because yeah. it's interesting what people do as opposed to what they say and what they think. Because a lot of people say they want public transport as long as someone else takes it. Mm -hmm. Or they want this or they want that. So, you know, you've got to match what people say with what they actually do. And, and having lived through these different crises and even through COVID, you know, we, we took a very measured response and I think we came out okay. So I think as we look at going through this next challenge, and I was here, you know, back when I think it was 95, was in New South Wales when Bob Carr said he was going to take the tolls off mm -hmm. the, yep. the M4 and the M5. And so, you know, we have to understand and we provide for those customers that are in hardship and do need to do with issues. But government's priorities change over time. And as long as we're listening to those government priorities, and again, we just announced, you know, the M7, M12 unsolicited proposal yep. going to the next step. And that, again, is working with a new set of priorities from the New South Wales government, but also getting what we need in our transaction. So I think there's still a big role for us to play and, and we're still proving that out. But again, the minute we get arrogant or the minute we stop listening to really what the client needs, and again, it's not yeah. about money, then I, I think that's when we'll be in trouble. So we're very focused on listening. Yeah, okay. I'll touch on that development. You brought the M7, M12 up a minute ago, but I'm interested in the data-driven side of things. Obviously, traffic's recovered pretty quickly from COVID. There's been a lot of speculation about people working from home impacting your traffic flows. Obviously, public transportation usage is down significantly, and that's contributed to the resilience of, of traffic on your roads. How do you see that playing out going forward in terms of normalising from the last couple of years? Yeah, and it's really interesting. So, you know, we have on, as every corporate has on the risk register, yeah. we had a pandemic risk on our risk register. And we, we judged it based more on what happened under SARS. So, you know, we had on the risk register traffic down 10%. So yeah. kind of blew through that. So we've got a new, <laughs> we've got a new, uh, new boundary on our risk register when it comes to pandemics. But even under that case, you know, we didn't breach any covenants. We were well protected and we understand. And I think some of us have been around for a while 
And when I was at Leighton Holdings during the GFC, you know, government stopped paying us, banks withdrew all their lines. I'm never going to be in that position again where I feel like you know, I'm under that kind of pressure. And the, actually the treasurer is what Transurban now was with me then. So yeah. he and I have been through a lot together and uh, he's never going to put himself in that position either. So we got through that. And I think in relation to what we see coming through the data, and again, this is what people say and and how they behave. So we've seen it recover quite quickly, as mm-hmm. you said. There are some different patterns and we look at the long-term trend lines. So my forecasters will tell me, Scott, I'm looking at 40, 50 years, and no matter what the crisis or the issue is, it revolves around the long-term trend line. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's above, sometimes it's below. It just revolves around that long-term trend line. The bigger issues are things like migration, unemployment, those issues that impact the longer-term uh, trend line. Yes, we will miss the delta of COVID, but expect to get back to that longer-term trend line. So what we're seeing is some of those longer-term macro thematics play out, mobility as a service, working from home more, which impact the amount of vehicles on the road. But on the other side, then you've got the online logistics picking up. You've got an adverse reaction to some levels of public transport. And Mm -hmm. what we are finding also is that some of our accounts are growing faster than they were pre-COVID. We're picking up new drivers because those people that used to commute five days a week by public transport, if they're only going to the office two or three days a week, they think, well, now I'll drive rather than take public transport. So people are subtly changing their patterns. But I think what I always have to remind people and our own directors is we're always talking about what is the level of growth. We're not Mm -hmm. talking ever about going backwards. It's just how much growth do we get out of these these assets going forward. But I think we're just following the long-term trend lines, and we will revolve around that, that line. And just obviously, you, again, you mentioned the M7 before. Within that portfolio, there's a lot of opportunities for expansion potentially to help meet that demand that you talked about from growing populations, etc. Yeah, the market looks at the exceptional cases and sees a lot of risk around development. What, what do you think they're missing? How do you view that risk and assess that risk? Yeah, look, and we look, every project's different. And that's yeah. one of the things I really like about Transurban. And we've got all kinds of people inside Transurban to look at the risk, assess the risk, to to the red teams or whatever we need to do to look at these things. So every deal is different. You know, what we have found over time is particularly the expansion projects, I'll come mm-hmm. back to your question, but the expansion projects, you know, the least risky because we yep. have uh, more control. Then you've got the M&A transactions and then the more greenfield sort of bespoke transactions. And so they each need to have a different return. You know, as I'd say, if we go through, and we can talk about Westgate in particular, but the rest of the projects, you know, we've come out always or ahead of business case, Mm -hmm. even when there have been issues because the way we protected the contracts. And going forward, you know, horses for courses and and how we do procurement, what risks we might take, the levels of contingency. So we're willing to work with our partners or the government on how we assess that risk. We're just not going to put ourselves in an acute position and, and, you know, I apologize for Westgate, so I'm not trying to suggest that Westgate is anything but terrible outcome for Transurban, but still at the end of the day, no impairment and it's still going to be yeah. a great long-term asset for the company. So what went wrong on Westgate? And, and how do you stop that happening yeah, next you look, time? Yeah, there's a, you know, a bringing of a few issues together in relation to Westgate. The first issue was, and I've been in the construction industry, you know, since, I think it was here since 1993, and 
the way you go about procuring construction contracts has always been you, you sign up the contract and then you confirm your environmental management plan and your, your development plans and all the other, your construction plans, all that occurs after construction. And it's just a, it's normally a, a bureaucratic process with some small pluses and minuses. We had the unfortunate circumstances in the case of Westgate that the EPA made a significant change post signing the contract and in fact, it was 18 months until the EPA determined how you would treat the material. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we had the construction market moving substantially against the contractor. And it was in their interest to use that to their advantage. And uh, we had the state under significant political pressure and pressure to deliver it, as we were. And then we had the issue that the problem became so big that it could potentially have a catastrophic impact on yep. those construction companies. So, you know, w legally, we still believe we were right, but I would hate to be here in 10 years being morally and legally right and have a big hole in the ground and uh, yeah. not have a project. So I think the big thing was how we handled the EPA and that risk and, and had we would have, in hindsight, and we'd never seen it before, in hindsight, we would have locked that away before we signed the contract. Okay. Just want to go back to something you said earlier in terms of what people say and, and what they do is so, you know, stated versus revealed preference, and that sunk a lot of Greenfield 12 roads in the early yeah. 2000s. More recently, we haven't seen it as bad. We've seen you've seen some misses around the world. You know, North Connect is ahead of a business case. How do you get comfort when you're looking at those Greenfield toll roads that you're actually your confidence the traffic forecasts are you know, more or less correct? Yeah. So look, you know, for us, North Connect is ahead. The M8 is ahead, or the M5 M8 yeah. combination our forecast, the 395, basically right on our forecast. So again, if I go back to that time, and I was on the other side of the fence, so I was with the contractor. You know, if you look at the, who the proponents of all those deals were, they were a combination of a contractor and an investment bank. Yep. And all the incentive on the contractor and the investment bank were the fees up front and the construction contract. So you get what you incentivize. and. I think from Transurban's perspective, we are looking long-term, our partners are long-term, you know, we've got longer-term LTIs, and so our incentive is to add value to the assets long-term, not to make quick fees, which is one of the reasons why we always like to be, again, when we partner, because some of these things are too big or we need support in getting some of these big assets, we like to partner with our big superannuation funds who have that long-term view, mm. so we're aligned there, but also, or we like to have the biggest equity stake in these deals so that every time we have a discussion on operating cost or capital structure, whatever it be, we can stand up and say, well, you know, we have more to lose or gain yeah. by doing this correctly. So there's no question that we are aligned to making these assets work long term. Okay. One of the things you talked about earlier on is that when you're going into a new project, you've been there for years. You've been thinking about it, yeah. essentially solving the problem ahead of time or trying to come up with a solution to the problem. So that then sort of suggests, given you're in international markets, you're not just in Australia. So that then goes to the way that you focus on particular markets, because if you're going to put you know, yeah. people on the ground, it really needs to be a long-term opportunity market. So can you talk to us about what you look for in those different sure. markets? No, it's a good question. So look, when we look at how we go about it, just to get into a market. So first, is it strategic? And I'll come back to strategy. Does it fit strategy? Do we have the people resources to do it? So, yep. you know, it's no good having the financial resources if you can't execute. Do we have the people resources? Then it's do we have an a, intensive use of people. Yeah, exactly. Do we have a competitive advantage? Do we have the financial resources? And how does it affect distribution? Because we know distribution yep. is very important to our security holders. And if you look at it, we're looking for 
very specific circumstances. We're looking for, at this point, North America and Australia. We're looking for demographics where you have strong economic characteristics. You've got growing populations with uh, supportive governments, and they come in and out, so it could be, you know, there's cycles, and the ability to create a network. Now, you think about the U.S. and you think, oh, well, there just must be everywhere to do that. But yeah. actually, the U.S. is not that many big cities. So you've got, you know, the Washington, D.C. area. We talk about Canada as well. You've got Montreal, Toronto. Then you've got places like uh, Dallas-Fort Worth or Denver or L.A. or Miami. But if you start getting up to the northeast states, you've got issues with unions. You've got issues on the privatization side. You know, Chicago, Skyways is, I think, probably going to come back up. But it just the demographics of, of Chicago, you have to think of Not long quite term. as attractive. Yeah, is that work? So it's very specific circumstances. And then do you have a competitive advantage? And what's your competitive advantage? Because people often, often ask us when something comes up in, in Spain or France, well, why don't you go to Spain or France? And it would be difficult for me to explain why I have a competitive advantage in, in, yeah, yeah, in yeah. Spain yeah. or France and, and how that could possibly yeah. work, given that those markets are less conducive to outsiders. I think Australia is one of the most open markets in the world. But still, when they come to Australia, a lot of the foreigners, they're still missing some of the subtleties of working in, in Australia. Yeah, so it's a tough set of criteria to get. So to get into a new market, you know, we've got to come in with a partner or some sort of competitive advantage or see a really long-term outlook. And, and actually, I'm going to Montreal to mm -hmm. talk about some stuff with the government there. So we see good long-term opportunities there in that region and you know then we have the partnership with uh, CDPQ that we've got in West Connects that we'll try and leverage on obviously in their hometown of, of Montreal as well. Um, when we talk to investors we talk about urban toll roads as being the kings of infrastructure assets yes. um, but when we talk about that what typically what is unspoken is that we think about that in an urban centre where there's rising population. Rising population where the free roads are full then the traffic's only got one place to go and hence we love that stuff. To what extent does the population or the demographics of the region play into the way that you think about an, a potential opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at something like Washington, you see one of the reasons why we like that Northern Virginia, Maryland, you know, they got the, I don't know, in the top five at least, I think sometimes it's first, second or third economic yeah. you know, capability yeah, yeah. of that market. So one is, what do the economics say? Is it a growing population? What kind of population? Again, so we look at Europe and there's some great assets in Europe, some of the great toll roads in the world, but Again, you've got a population that's probably not growing that fast. Yeah. It's just a very different characteristic and competition environment for us. So, yeah, the demographics. And that's why most of the markets that we look at are in the sort of mid to southern U.S. where those are basically have been the more growth-oriented areas. Can we talk a little bit about driverless cars? You know, if we were to go back five years or so, driverless cars were widely thought to be upon us by now. Yeah. There were some reasonably aggressive forecasters, I think, as it turned out, in terms of the adoption rate of yeah. driverless cars hasn't quite played out that way. What do you see as you go forward? Yeah. You know, what do you see in terms of the development? What does it mean for the business model? Yeah, so no, it's interesting. And there's quite a few things I think we've talked about before. So just when you get the driverless cars, you've got mobility as a service really increases as well. So there's a few trends that will come together. I think, you know, when all this started in peak hype, we, we talked about it and everyone was wanting us to talk about driverless cars and we formed an internal view that was more the middle of next decade that was really going to have an impact. So in the middle of the 2030s, it started really having an impact because you need to have so many of them in the, yeah, in yeah, the fleet. Yeah. I, and you start to see, you know, obviously with brand new cars, there's certain aspects that have some level of autonomy, but nothing like we're expecting. So 
We do still see that as a major benefit for our roads because that'll be the first place they're most likely used and particularly freight. And hopefully we could use that capacity off peak, in other words, with freight and more autonomous movements around freight. And we saw it during COVID, which was a real benefit not only to our roads, but we think to the community where the local councils freed up the ability to deliver freight outside of uh, business hours. And when you move to electric vehicles and they're quieter and and other things. So we think there'll be the ability to utilize more time on the road. And then obviously with autonomy, you can uh, utilize more space on the road. So we think it's a plus plus. And then you've got mobility as a service, which will keep making personal transport or personal road use cheaper. So I think that's the other thing that, you know, we look at is if you look at over the last hundred years since cars really came into mass production and mass use, the real cost per mile or kilometer really hasn't changed. But when you look at what's forecast, it's forecasted depending on who you talk to, you know, 30 to 50 percent. So the real cost of road transport is going to drop, which is going to be an issue for those intermediate modes, we believe, of transport. So buses, light rail, you still need need the heavy rail, move a lot of people to the cities and, and to the big employment districts. So if you think it's going to get cheaper, you're going to be able to put more with technology and autonomous vehicles, more cars on the road. Again, we think the long term benefit transurban as long as we take advantage of them. Again, it's just about how much growth we can capture. Okay, so the trend is in your favour in that the cost of travel goes down, so that should lead to an increase in the volume of trips. I get that at some point when these things are viable. Do you have a game plan for pragmatically how it works? Because it's all well and good yeah, if sure. 10% or 20% of the, of the vehicle yeah. fleet is autonomous. To my simple view, that doesn't necessarily deliver you a huge benefit up front. At 95%, sure, there's yeah. huge benefits, but how do you segregate them on the road? And how do you deal with those practical issues? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I should have said as well, when we talk about, and we were talking about the middle, we talk about obviously peak hype as well. So if you look at any, yeah. which you guys would have looked at, you look at any trend, you know, whether it's mobile phones or whatever, you, 10 years before it actually gets in place is usually peak hype in a technology trend. So usually 10 years out, this peak hype, everyone's talking about it, it's going to be here tomorrow, and then nothing happens, and then 10 years later, all of a sudden, everyone goes, oh, it's, it's here. It. <laughs> and so we expect something similar to CAV. So we're working with, I think we're up to eight different vehicle manufacturers on how their cars could work on our road, and, and you know everything we do when we upgrade our roads or, or build new roads now, the amount of fiber optic cable we're installing to make it okay. ready. So it's the whole issue of, is it the car that's doing all the work? Is it the car and the road? What's the road doing? How do we interact with that? And one of the things that we're doing and looking at it right now is, you know, hopefully in the very soon in the future, we're looking at some trials with trucks. Mm-hmm. And again, sort of going to that, that issue of moving freight, uh, particularly off peak at night. So we think that freight is probably likely the first place we'll see a real benefit. Yep. So I think the cars will come. But like you said, that you got to get up to 30% of the fleet or so to make a big benefit. But I think freight can make a big benefit. And even now in some place like Melbourne, where we have the lane use management system and other things, we could effectively at night isolate those. A particular yeah, lane. a particular lane or isolate those roads to just say, okay, they're closed to everything but autonomous trucks. So we're, we're looking at some of that stuff uh, right now. And, okay. and to be honest, which has been good with the governments have been pretty open to trials. You know, we mm-hmm. thought they might be mm-hmm. a bit more hesitant, but I think they understand the trends are coming and we've been pretty open doing some things like that. So hopefully that's something we can talk about in the near future. Carbon, you know, carbon emissions, big theme, certainly across the investment world. Now, Transurban, not a 
big emitter of carbon, but in building roads, plenty of carbon involved in the construction of roads. Do you see a future where road construction involves much less carbon? Yeah, well, we're trying to. I mean, we're working very hard on that. As you said, we're not a big emitter of carbon, and the stuff that we're doing in uh, Scope 1 and 2 uh, you know, will well be done before 2030, the zero position there. And then, obviously, we're targeted in 2050, and we have some plans and working with, I hate the name, NECA Materials Embedded Carbon. Wow. Yeah, anyway, That's a mouthful. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's a mouthful, but it's basically the whole industry all the major suppliers, material suppliers, and us and the major users of them to work on zero emissions concrete and green steel and the other things that we needed to do, because that's our biggest hurdle yep. long-term, is to look at the supply of the materials. But you know everything that we're doing now, and you know we're the first to get ISCA ratings on major infrastructure projects, we're the first to get the excellent as, as built. So you know we're working, very hard to make sure we can do as much as we can now, but there's much more to do. And that's our biggest challenge is concrete and steel for the long term, but we're working with suppliers on that. A lot of times that is more where we come up to barriers with the government. So yeah, we've, yeah, got, yeah. we've got some new asphalt, some low emissions asphalt that we're using in Queensland in a, on a trial basis. And it took us a, a while to get that approved through the standards process, but you know that that's worked. I mean, and for those of you who, who don't even know, even to get all the new tunnels in Sydney use concrete base now, and, and all uh, tunnels used to have asphalt. But of course you have to replace the asphalt every sort of uh, 10 to 15 years, depending on the wear. That's a lot of carbon. But even to get the standard to move to concrete took us a, a long time, but it's a much better service, much better from operation costs, but also uh, from emissions. So there's all these little things that we're constantly doing, but the big challenge is those materials which we're working with the industry on and spending some money there. But the other thing I know your investors or, or listeners will probably be interested in is the vehicles, and that's the one that always we acknowledge that the scope three in relation to the vehicles that drive on our road mm-hmm. under the science-based targets which we follow and everything, and they're not our emissions. So they go to the emissions of the manufacturer of the vehicles. But still, we want to do everything we can to lower the emissions, obviously using the toll roads. And you can see on our apps, you know, we can reduce your emissions by 30% from using the roads as the alternatives. We've got driving initiatives around better energy use. We're obviously supporting zero emission vehicles where we can. So there's lots of things that we can do to try and support that transition, uh, which really... It does lower the cost of transport long term, but obviously it's just the right thing to do, even though it's not considered in our in our scope. The framework we seek to look at the transition to a zero carbon economy is that you need an alternative technology. The technology has got to be economic, and then you need government policy support. Yeah. It seems to me we've got government policy support broadly for these things. I'm not sure if they've been... Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. when you're tendering for things, no one's specifying low carbon. So we're or, the ones. We're yeah. the ones saying we want an ISCA rate. You're leading it. Yeah, so we're the ones. We were the, Again, that's where we were the first. We said, okay, we want the ISCA rate. It just depends on the government and where they're doing things, but they're not necessarily saying, okay, you have to use low emissions concrete or you have to use... And so when you go through the procurement process and you're working with the government, you do have to follow their yeah, procurement process. So... I think over time, the government's going to have to, if they're going to meet their targets, step up and say, okay, we're going to take that cost on zero emission concrete or or low emission steel. So we're on that journey and things are improving, but we're not at that point yet. That was my question about how the government thinks about this. So yeah, thank you. Well, I think, look, and and they've moved a long way and they're continuing to move, but it's it's still, uh, they have the big targets, 
but the issue between the big target and then setting out a construction yeah, sure. contract and saying, I want this concrete, I want yep. this steel, if, I want this, yeah. and that's going to cost me 20% more. And if you're in a competitive bidding process, then they're not going to appreciate yeah. the higher cost effectively. Yeah. All right, Scott, thank you very much for joining us today. That's great. Hopefully the listeners have got an appreciation for why you're the biggest position in the fund <laughs> and why we've been such long-term holders. Thank you. No, thank you. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys. Cheers. That was CEO of Transurban, Scott Charlton, who was interviewed by Magellan Infrastructure Portfolio Manager, Offa Carliner, and Head of Infrastructure, Gerald Stack. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.